Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, tennis fans. Welcome to the Yellow Ball Network. This is your host, Coach Denise, exploring tennis blessings and its effects on life's journey. Tennis is a wonderful sport, which might be the vehicle that takes you through life's journey. And our mentors might give you the roadmap for that journey. Each broadcast, I will be talking with mentors who who have paved the pathway for many players and coaches. Most have authored books and papers on tennis and life, and they continue to give back today. Who are these mentors, you ask? Well, on most Thursdays, you will probably hear either Alan Fox, Coach Chuck Reese, Dr. Bryce Young, Coach Ashley Hobbs, or Energy Coach Linda LeClaire. During the last four years, I have been blessed to have other coaches like Ed Kraft, Nick Saviano, uh, Johnny Angel, our uh, mentor today, uh, Scott Williams, and of course, many other college coaches and high school coaches. You have also heard discussions with many others like FACA Executive Director Sean Cruz, uh, Florida Tennis Magazine founder and editor Jim Marks, PTR and USPTA Executive Directors Dan Santorum and John Emery, or any of a dozen of other coaches, uh, USTA officials, or industry leaders who have blessed us on our broadcast during the last four years. And because I do believe Dr. King's statement, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter, I will add my personal views on tennis and life. Naturally, you will hear my biased views that the tennis journey should be going through our high schools and colleges. And, of course, the nice thing about Block Talk Radio is you can listen anytime you choose to Coach Denise Sharon Tennis Blessings or the other Yellow Ball Network broadcasts like Coach Chuck Greasy's American Tennis anytime you choose. As a matter of fact, I just finished uh, listening to uh, Chuck Greasy's uh, broadcast uh, about an hour and a half ago. And it's, I suggest any young coaches that you know you, you ought to have them go on there, or any high school coaches especially, uh, because uh, his topic was very interesting, and that's uh, give up on what is not, uh, you know, not comfortable for you. Uh, it's a topic we don't usually talk about, uh, I wish I would have heard it, and uh, Johnny Angel, who will be on uh, momentarily uh, with us, uh, I'd like to hear the two of them uh, discuss it because uh, their topics were pretty similar. But it is uh, a broadcast. All of the broadcasts are something you should be listening to. But I thought uh, today's uh, broadcast uh was something that especially well, players and uh, parents too, but especially coaches should be listening to it because it's not a topic talked about often enough. And we will get into it some today, though. 
I would like to thank the Yellow Ball CEO, J.P. Weber, for hosting our network. And if you're not following We Coach Tennis on Facebook, you're missing out on some useful information. Besides our weekly conversation, the almighty willing, you will be able to continue reading my articles in Florida Tennis Magazine. And as I have previously stated, if you disagree with my views or want to add something, email me at coachdenise.fhstca at att.net. That's coach, D-A-N-I-S-E dot F-H-S-T-C-A at A-T-T dot net. Who knows? You may hear your views on future Coach Denise Exploring Tennis Blessings uh, articles, or you may read them in uh, Florida Tennis Magazine. I should also remind you that if someone has taken the last issue of Florida Tennis uh, from your pro shop and you're not a subscriber yet, you can also find the last issue by going to www.floridatennis.com. You can always read the last issue there. And, of course, in between issues, uh, Jim Marks, uh, our photographers, uh, the other writers, and I try to keep your current on Facebook at capital F, capital L, Tennis. That's FL Tennis on uh, your Facebook site, and we should be able to keep you uh, updated on what's going on because a lot of things happen in between issue. Today we are blessed, like I said, uh, to uh, be able to have uh, Johnny Angel with us, and this tells us something about our mentors uh, on the broadcast, which I think is so important. As you know, we were going to close down for the summer and only do uh, one broadcast a month until October. And Johnny Angel was doing the last broadcast, and we did have uh, problems with the broadcast. And uh, he says, I will come back and uh, we will do it. And uh, uh, he would would do the July broadcast. And uh, today uh, he is back with us. And Although I advised everybody to take advice that I previously written and talked about and managing your time, uh, the game of tennis is about time, and enjoying the summer and your family is just important. Our mentors really do are available, and that's why I don't like to ask them too long for things. Johnny Angel uh, is a person, I think I see him online now. Uh, Hang on just a second. Johnny, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? I can hear you good. I haven't introduced you yet, Johnny, so let me do that, and then we get into uh, the broadcast. Uh, uh, Johnny Angel is a person I happen to have been blessed to know for a number of years. Uh, He is uh, president of uh, Professional Tennis Services here based in Florida, And uh, Johnny has over 40 years of experience coaching high-performance players uh, uh, on the WTA and ATP tours. He has coached, uh, his players have reached top 50 in the world. 
and his passion is behavior of coaching, uh, which begins in the early stages of player development, uh, and especially now that we're into the net generation programs, uh, you really can't. Uh, I think it will let Johnny, because uh, he's the expert on this, talk about uh, behavior research uh, using the applied behavior analytics approach to coaching tennis. I don't think you can use it uh, too early, but uh, I will let him uh, talk about that. Uh, Johnny, uh, back when the PTR was uh, US uh, PTA, and it was, I mean, the US PTR, excuse me, and uh, was basically an American organization, uh, Johnny actually followed me as president of the Florida section. He was the third president of the Florida section. And as most of you know, the PTR has expanded throughout the world. It's now the largest organization, uh, coaching organization in the uh, world. And uh, we no longer have state uh uh, presidents and everything, which uh, is, is something I think was worthwhile discussing at another time. But I think our topic uh, today is one that uh, I'd like to have Johnny uh, continue with. And uh, John, uh, I would uh, ask you to think of the broadcast as if you were uh, at one of your uh, seminars, or the, like the PTR or uh, doing uh, a presentation on this. Uh, it's going to be your time uh, really for uh, the next uh, 40, 45 minutes. So, uh, Johnny, thank you for being on, and uh, let's get into the topic, if you would. Okay. Uh, I'm happy to be here and happy to return. Um uh, you did a great intro, so there's really not much to add to that. Um, there's a term that I call uh, coined called uh, evidence-based coaching or EBT, evidence-based training. And essentially what that is, uh, evidence-based training evolved from evidence-based medicine, which was first coined in the early 1990s. And it has its origins in human clinical medicine. Uh, the primary goals of uh, EBM are to utilize the best research evidence, clinical experience, and values when making healthcare uh, decisions. So what we did was adopted um, a lot of that, and these concepts uh, are still used uh, today in the healthcare field and not so much in the tennis field. We tend to be a little bit way over on the cognitive side, which I think is somewhat problematic, uh, and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, uh, but however, uh, this philosophy has gained acceptance in the athletic care and training fields. A framework uh, can be used to make training, nutrition, and health-related decisions uh, for the players that we work with. Um, the evidence part of it refers specifically to research or empirical scientific evidence or scientific evidence that you gather uh, on the court. This information comes uh, also from the publications of scientific studies, 
with athletes and originates with uh, testable hypotheses. Uh, this differs from evidence that is based solely upon experience, which I, you won't get an argument for me that that's actually very valuable, or upon opinion, less so, or upon beliefs alone, even less so. So how did ABA get involved? Well, ABA is associated with B.F. Skinner. Uh, we all know B.F. Skinner as a radical behaviorist. I'm not necessarily a ra- radical behaviorist. Uh, I don't believe I'm not, uh, you know, the, the uh, behavioral coaching and applied behavioral analysis in sports uh, is used in sports and athletic, uh, athletic training to teach and reinforce skills using and training and used in training and competition. The behavioral coaching has been used in sports for, uh, from football to gymnastics to swimming to tennis to improve athletic training regimes, such as enforcing health, diet, and regular exercise programs in addition to learning the skill of the sport and to boost the performance of particular athletic skills, such as maintaining proper body form. Okay, so everybody is going, oh, this must be like the new, the new kid on the block, and it really isn't. Actually, um, the uh, uh, tennis, for instance, we'll just take tennis, and I'll give you one brief uh, before we get into the ins and outs on how to do it. I'll give you a uh, little brief synopsis on one study. Uh, Allison, and I, I, I can never pronounce this guy's name, uh, Adelon, in 1980, compared a behavioral coaching intervention with standard coaching procedures for 12 students. And that age range from about 18 to 30. And they took these students and they enrolled them in a tennis program. A detailed task analysis was created to measure forehand, backhand, and the, uh, the serve. The research, uh, or excuse me, the researchers described standard coaching as a combination of verbal instruction, modeling, feedback, and encouragement similar to their behavioral coaching protocol for footballs that, uh, football players and other sports that they were working with. Uh, Allison had uh, the tennis coach deliver behavior-specific instructions about stroke position, evaluate correct and incorrect executions, and guide the students to assume proper positioning with further instructions. Now, this is where it gets kind of cool because um, – Multiple baseline designs uh, were used, and uh, it's. I'm trying to think of the year now uh, when we had uh, when Dennis. Uh, I, I got to say it's probably about 19. Uh, it was probably about 1983, maybe even before then, Dennis. Vandermeer did a shaping uh, procedure. And now you may not think of it as shaping, but it's actually teaching through approximation. And if you remember correctly, the procedure started out when you were teaching a beginning player uh, as young as six or even even an adult. What you would do is you would have, um, have them start by putting the racket down on the ground and you would toss the ball over and try to hit the racket. 
to accomplish <clears throat> to accomplish getting the uh, ball to bounce up in the hitting zone. And then they went through a series of uh, making mini coaches. So what would happen is, is um, one of the players, there was two on a team, would say, turn, rack it back and down, step, contact point, follow through. That is a pure shaping ABA principle. And when I was looking at it the other day in old, older things, I thought to myself, wow, that is in, uh, that's incredible that we were doing it way, way back then. And then we got away for that, from that. We started to uh, look at different things and uh, uh, we started to look at different things and uh, started to get the cart before the horse, you know, so to speak. Now, having said that, uh, back to uh, the studies that were being done, uh, they did a baseline and then they uh, demonstrated the behavioral coaching increased in actuality, the behavioral coaching increased the percentage of trials in which students executed strokes correctly. Eventually, the standard coaching procedures were able to maintain the performance improvement. So if we're using a shaping paradigm and uh, or a shaping protocol and then we are moving it to cueing where we're <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> where we're able to maintain the performance improvement then we are uh, producing a better player one that retains the uh, fine motor pattern much quicker so having said that there, in that study, there was a, a, a particularly relevant was the concern about sustaining the more intensive and time-consuming demands that characterize uh, most behavioral coaching applications. Well, what happened was is we found out that Ziegler in 1987 studied the effects of self-directed stimulus cueing techniques on the skill acquisition of 20 beginning tennis players who were like the same age group. And they attended a university-based physical education service program. Each day, their forehand and backhand strokes were measured during ball machine-generated drills. Uh, the performance was quantified as a percentage of task analysis steps executed correctly. The players were assigned to three groups. Each group received general directions from a tennis instructor as well as ball machine supervision from two assistants. Now, remember, this is a ball machine now. The self-directed stimulus cueing intervention occurred in a multiple baseline design across groups. The, interve the intervention taught the players to, A, track the ball and say ball as soon as it was fired from the ball machine, B, to say bounce as the ball contacted the court surface, and then thirdly, say hit upon striking the ball with the racket. Now, you got to remember, this is back in the 80s. This is not 2019, and we've come a long ways in tennis. So um, to prepare physically for the next ball. So they reported as group data, the average percentage of correct forehand and backhand strokes increased dramatically from 13 to 33% during baseline to 43 to 83% during intervention. Now, those are some serious numbers. 
that's a serious uh, uh, skill acquisition. So Ziegler concluded the performance improvement effects from self-directed stimulus cueing uh, uh, derived from focusing on the ball as a form of preparation for skill execution. But the study was not really planned to like test this kind of hypothesis. So they, uh, one additional study was Allen in 1998. He was of interest because the objection uh, the objective was to reduce negative behavior during matches, which we all see. We see people breaking rackets. We see kids copying attitude. Uh, you know, there's, uh, issues with children, uh, attention span and focus as a result of too much online gaming and other things that are like instant rewards. Tennis is not one of those, unfortunately. Uh, when you look at video, I'm just going to digress for a second because when we get into problems with behavior, we uh, on the court, or we're wondering when a student isn't getting it. Uh, a lot of times, we're dealing with some outside factors that are contributory. So, having said that, <clears throat> one additional kind of study that Alan did is uh, was, as I had mentioned, was to reduce negative behavior during matches. The participant was a 14-year-old boy yeah, with a history of on complimentary outbursts, loud vocalizing, striking the racket on the court, waving his arms, swearing, cussing, everything, when competing during state and regional events. The baseline data documented numerous outbursts despite parental efforts to curtail, uh, curtail the behavior. So intervention started with the awareness training that had the boy describe outbursts, identify precursor behaviors. Uh, and pinpoint the most common provoking conditions. He was also taught to perform uh, special types of breathing or use special types of breathing exercises when he uh, recognized that he started to feel that way or it was was still within threshold. And um, whenever he recognized the uh, precursor behaviors in response to an audible cue from his parents in the stand, now, this was problematic because a lot of times, um, you know, when parents are saying a cue from the stands, the other guy is thinking that you're coaching and this guy is not really coaching. Uh, well, he is coaching in a sense, but he's not coaching the game for an advantage. But then again, one could argue getting you not to go over the threshold and break your rackets and scream and yell is probably giving you an advantage. Um, having said that, uh, he was able to earn points by getting stereo compact discs. Now, I'm not a big fan of uh, material rewards in positive reinforcement, but uh, he was to earn these points, and then so many points for every match that he played that he didn't do this, he was able to be under impulse control. Uh, and then finally, he, was a, he would be able to trade those points for something that he really wanted. Uh, when he was observed engaging uh, in the correct response. The combination of procedures to reduce the number of outbursts per tennis match uh, kind of worked, but they didn't have a, uh, an acceptable frequency. In other words, the um, parents uh, put too much emotion into it, and there was... Uh, uh, 
the penalty was actually uh, negative punishment, and therefore any outburst that resulted from the boy, the parents would have and would throw out from the current match and forfeit the next event. Um, this response cost procedure essentially eliminated all the outbursts, but also kind of like put it back at the 8 o'clock start times, and he lost a lot of points. And then they had a whole other myriad of problems when he had to deal with his peers and so on. Unfortunately, a 12-month follow-up assessment revealed that the boy was again displaying outbursts. Now, we call that ex- – once you – I personally would have put it under extinction. I would not have reinforced that behavior. We would have had an extinction burst, and then uh, it would have uh, – uh, since the behavior wasn't being for- reinforced, it would uh, disappear, uh, go into extinction. So let me give you another – that is just one digression. I'm sorry because I'm trying to make it as colloquial as, as possible uh, without uh, boring everybody. But applied behavioral analysis has been used in sports and athletic training to teach and reinforce skills using training and competition for a long time. Behavioral coaching has been used in sports from football to gymnastics to swimming both to improve athletic training regimes such as enforcing health, diet, and regular exercise programs and to boost the performance of a particular athletic skill, such as maintaining good stroke mechanics, good body form, and uh, on and on. In the world of competitive sports, as we all know, coaches search for any edge that will give them or their team an advantage over their adversaries. You know, like constant training and practice are designed to impart skills to athletes that will bring them to the top of their form when it's time to compete. Not a problem with that. We are all guilty of that. Uh, I shouldn't say guilty, but we all do that. The science of applied behavioral analysis, I'm going to refer to it as ABA. Uh, ABA is like a natural fit for the rigors involved in maximizing the output and performance of athletes. For a applied behavioral analyst, all actions, whether used in daily life or on the court, are simply a set of behaviors and, as such, can be taught and reinforced using the same basic tenets of operating conditioning. Okay, big words, I know. Behavioral conditioning um, has a few challenges. The challenges of motivating and training athletes to achieve peak performance has always involved the use of behavioral cues. Now, behavioral cues, uh, I'm sure everyone that's listening to this or everyone that teaches tennis uses behavioral cues. Uh, that's right. That's it. You got it. You know, come on. You know, spank it, any, any kind of word you want to use, whatever verbiage you use. But historically, the process was ad hoc and informed more by a coach's instinct and tradition than by a scientific approach. Uh, That's kind of like outlined by applied behavioral analysis. Repetition, of course, is an old coaching favorite. As anyone who's ever run the lines or performed endless uh, hitting drills can attest to. Uh, But simple repetition is only one element of a truly scientific behavioral approach to skill training. Uh, now, I touched on that study. Uh, the studies actually 
went on through the 1990s, and that really boosted ABA as far as teaching tennis and athletic training. Uh, The studies examine common ABA strategies such as positive reinforcement for proper movements, uh, constant feedback and stimulus training, uh, public performance objectives, and chaining behavioral sequences to train complex movements in place. Now, um, as I alluded to earlier, that one example back in the PTR manual with the turn, uh, racket back and down, step, contact point, follow through, that's, a cha- that's an example of a chaining behavioral sequence. Today, ABA um, works with team and individual athletes to apply operant conditioning techniques to teach athletic skills. Some ABAs are employed as counselors or psychologists directly to sports franchise, while others work in private practice as, you know, consultants. They may work with athletics, or I'm sorry, with athletes uh, directly or help train coaches in effective conditioning techniques, uh, drawing on applied behavioral analysis. A technique called behavioral coaching has become popular in many different sports since the 1980s. Behavioral coaching makes use of operant conditioning techniques, as I mentioned earlier, to improve and speed up a player's skill acquisition. Now, once the skill is acquired, then we look at fluency, you know, how fluent is it? You know, the method combines a series of techniques familiar to anybody that has any understanding of the ABA, which is, um, but are implied in the, it's applied in the coaching context. Systematic use of verbal instruction and feedback. That's one, using the same words or phrases to describe movements and consistently offering feedback on performance at the same stage in practice. Two, positive and negative reinforcement, providing immediate recognition for proper or improper technique as the movements are being made. Three, positive practice, a repeated set of movements in the proper technique made in controlled circumstances and the key word here, made in controlled circumstances where improper movements cannot be made to help imprint the correct technique. And lastly, timeout. The practice of removing players from practice or play when they exhibit incorrect behaviors to avoid reinforcing those behaviors. Now, uh, behavioral analysis or ABA can be used in a sports strategy, you can predict an opponent's action. Uh, as it turns out, ABA analysis and another contribution to sports that exists quite apart from its value as a training system, because ABA involves a systematic method of observation and involves making and testing predictions about behavior. Uh, it can be used to analyze the game plan of opponents and to reveal a behavioral bias that they can be exploded or exploited uh, for one's own game. So when we look at reinforcing behavior, like positive reinforcement, which we refer to as R+, and uh, there's really actually only four quadrants. Um, There's actually more than four, but there's four basic ones. One is positive reinforcement, negative uh, reinforcement, 
positive punishment, negative punishment. Okay. It's real simple. Plus means we add, minus means we take away. So if I'm on the court and I'm working, uh, I'm competing, I'll give you an example. Uh, I'm teaching a fine motor pattern. Um, What I will do is I will do one or two things. If I can achieve fluency and skill acquisition without the use of a bridging stimulus, I'll do it that way. Uh, A bridging stimulus, um, let's see, I don't know how many of you guys out there probably uh, have trained a dog to fit and used a clicker. A clicker is a bridging stimulus. A whistle is a a bridging stimulus. Uh, One can use a verbal bridging stimulus is yes, that's a bridging stimulus. What I tend to do is I do it reversed. And the way that I do it is, is let's say that I'm working on a forehand and I want the player to do the complete motion. He won't get the yes until the stroke is correct. When he gets the stroke correct, I'm reinforcing that correct thing. The mind on a subcortical level, that means not aware of, and cortical you are aware of. But on the subcortical level, what happens is is it gets, uh, it gets uh, entwined in there and it gets imprinted, and the player then uh, will aesthetically feel the stroke being done and tend to repeat that. Um, now, Essentially, what I'm saying is is you show them the stroke, you break it down, you shape the stroke, and then you get the hell out of the way. <laughs> and, you know, you try to do minimally talking and only reinforcing when it is right. And let the player find the stroke. We don't really intervene until the struggling becomes so apparent that he's not going to get it, we might go in there and add one or two uh, corrections or one correction and then have him work on it again. But again, only reinforcing when the stroke is correct. And that's basically how it works. Now, I alluded to earlier that we compete with a lot of other sports and we compete with a lot of other uh, social activities. In one being um, uh, video games, the I have a rule where players, when they come to train, cannot engage in video games up to or the computer up to an hour and a half uh, before practice, and that's because it affects their depth perception. And I have scientific studies on that, and it's been proven uh, uh, three or four different ways. So. The other thing is, is that we have children today that are learning the game that get instant reward when they play the video game. It's real fast. It's like one, two, three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it. I got it. Okay. Oh, lost next. I got it. I got it. I got it. Lost next. I got it. I got it. And actually, what happens is, is when you get them on the tennis court and you're teaching them the game, uh, it's not a game to them. It's boring. Now, I know what you're going to say. Why would a kid be out there trying to learn tennis um, when uh, he has video games that give them that kind of 
instant gratification? And that's a real good question because I've never really ever had an opportunity to sit down and think about it. Uh, well, I've thought about it, but I haven't really solved the solved the problem. Usually what I have is um, with younger players, those are the ones that are in that generation, we try to make it fun, but it's real fun. It's not make-believe fun. And I'll give you an example. We play uh, a game when they, we want them to learn uh, the positions of the court and everything. We'll play Simon Says, and Simon Says go to the baseline. Simon Says go to the single service line, blah, blah, blah. We'll do that. With the older players, though, however, it's a constant struggle to keep them focused. So what we do is we break the training sessions into 15-minute intervals because they can only really focus for about 12 without getting bored because it's not moving fast enough. Give them a short break because we're here in Florida. It's very hot, so they get some water. uh, They get hydrated, then they get back out there, and then we do – 15 minutes more, and so and so. Uh, I find that not only uh, rehydrating, which is important, but it also gives their uh, mind a rest. So during that three minutes, I don't really care whether or not they're talking about video games or if they're talking about seeing Susie at 5 o'clock or what's for dinner. Um, But when they're back on the court, they are back and energized and refocused. So how do we uh, fix our game today? Uh, how do we grow the game? Well, we have a lot of competition. When you really think about it, we we uh, the only way we can take a skill like ours, which is ex- uh, extremely complicated skill. Not as easy as people think it is. If it, if it was that easy, everybody would be able to walk on the court and do it correctly. Um, we have to think of new ways to be efficient in, in how we train. Um, we have to be very regimented in our, our training programs. Uh, and lastly, it's got to be fun. And how do you keep fun real? How do we keep it real? I can tell you right now that uh, you can be out there with a four-year-old or a five-year-old or a six-year-old and tell them, toss the ball over the net to them and tell them, oh, honey, everything is okay. Don't worry. You'll get it. Blah, 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 blah. And they look at you like you're from outer space. <laughs> they And I've actually stopped myself and said, well, is that kind of corny? And they go, yeah, coach, that's corny. I said, okay, well, let's do it this way then. Let's, uh, don't worry about it if you miss. Let's try to fix it. You tell me what you did wrong or what would you have done differently. And I try to stay away from the right or wrong thing. And I tell them to tell me what you would have done differently. How would you have swung the racket differently? And they, you would be surprised on how often they get it right and uh, because they can feel it. So here's the mantra. Instruction has to be precise. Reinforcement has to be right on the money at the time the behavior is exhibited. And three, there has to be a lot of follow-up. Now, 
uh, follow-up and there has to be commitment. Now, on the commitment part, what I do is I have all my players keep a journal. I keep one, too, by the way. And um, every day after practice, they write in their journal what they like, what they dislike, what they should have done better, and then we sit down and we talk about it. Now, this is even with 12-year-olds. Now, 12-year-olds, will some will fool around and think it's kind of corny, and some will they all eventually get with the program. I mean, some will be very studious about it. <clears throat> Having said that, the uh, we keep journals. We review the journals once a week, and then we use uh, we actually track behaviors on the court. Uh, we gather a lot of data as far as uh, let's see, how many forehands are you hitting correctly? Uh, are you hitting your target correctly? How many times are you hitting it? If I hit 100, am I at 80%? Am I at 90%? Where am I at with it? And data never lies. So they can't argue that fact with you. So you would be surprised on how quickly they turn around and say, okay, I see the numbers. What do I need to do? I mean, I think I'm doing everything right. And that's where operant conditioning comes in and uh, proper reinforcement of the behavior or the motor pattern that you want. Uh, I have probably lost you guys, and I apologize if I have, um, because it's such a passion for me uh, to uh, be involved uh, with young people and uh, make positive changes in their life. Do you have any questions, John? No, I was just thinking, uh, not questions, but I was just thinking in today with all the technology advancements that we have, uh, thinking of place site and everything, there's actually, this fits right into it. I think, you know, sometimes we're a little late in adopting policies, but, you know, we all uh, love uh what the PTRs did, and they were kind of ahead on the teaching end of it. But, I mean, this concept I don't think conflicts at all with the technology and the information we get today. It actually enhances this. Am I right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It does enhance it because – and it's not new, and that's the point that I'm trying to make, you know. Uh, It's been used at the Olympics. Uh, you know, uh, we're doing stimulus training, constant feedback. Now, um, the constant feedback part, I don't care for. I like consistent feedback, but I don't like constant feedback. And uh, there's a gal that I know that's working with uh, neurosurgeons, and we're doing a, she's doing a study where they're doing very complex neurosurgery, and they use a clicker. This is cool, cool stuff. And it's called Teaching Through Acoustical Guidance. It's called TAG. And what they do is, is when the stroke is right, you get a click. Now, I do the same thing, except I use a verbal yes. And they're quiet, and the the surgeon goes on and on and on. And finally, you're reinforcing reinforcing the correct movements and ignoring the movements that are not correct. Now, I don't want everybody to think that, you know, ABA is simple. It's really not. It's it's actually quite complicated. But we could take this science 
and use the science in tennis, and it would save uh, it would save a lot of time. We'd have happier players, and uh, we wouldn't constantly um, having chase them down to play the game or to practice. You know, I, I knew a guy. This is funny. I, I knew a guy that was an Olympic coach. Yeah. When everybody came to practice back in the day, he had 12 laps, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you practiced right and did everything that you were asked to do, all those laps got removed. Okay. This is actually a behavioral principle. It's negative reinforcement. You're taking it away. So, you know, I, I, I thought about that for a minute and I thought, well, that's something I don't really want to do. And he can kind of do it because he has, a, you have to know your, your players. And I want to add that we do coach the whole person, not just the game. You coach right. the whole person. And so having said that, um, you know, I was thinking, how could I do something similar, but it wasn't so aversive because generally when we look at um, behavior, we used to look at it at A, B, C. The A stands for antecedent, uh, the B is behavior, and C is the consequence being negative or positive, okay? Well, I have a friend at FSU, John Bailey, who's a really brilliant guy, and um, we came up with a adding a couple of things to it. One is the physical condition of the organism, which is P, and M is the motivational variable. And um, so in order for us to do a functional analysis to find the function of the behavior that we're trying to change, we have to add those two pieces in. And so what is the motivational variable? Well, behavior is usually falls into two classes that's either to deprivation of some reinforcement or to escape some aversive stimulus. Okay. I don't want the player, if they see the, like the 12 laps when they walk on the court, which would be to be construed as aversive. I don't want to go down that, that way. Okay. But by the same token, uh, the physical condition of the, player is like really important and I don't want to deprive them of reinforcement but I want the reinforcement to be specific and to be uh, right on the money okay Uh, in the right time reinforced at the right time so having said that um, we look at producing a player so when you look at the video gamers who are, you know, which almost every kid is, they have this, uh, they have this position that they don't necessarily like exercise. So if you look at uh, Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs, you, you'll see that one of the foundations is, uh, is, is the physical condition. And so first we got to make him an athlete but we have to do it in such a way that they're still learning the game. Then we have to attend to their emotional needs because uh, each player is different, you know, uh, for whatever reason. 
And this is why we coach the whole player, because each player we get, to, we have to get to know really, really well. And training without goals, short-term, mid-term, and long-term goals is not training if you're not doing it. You know, right. uh, and then we have to get the player to focus on the process, okay, and on their or their performance, not on the outcome, because outcome goals are something that is totally out of our control. Uh, they're not necessarily in our control completely. The performance is though. So if you look at the stats on performance, if we are focused in that area on performance and the player's focused on his performance, his outcome rises uh, quite a bit. You know, his outcome uh, in matches and in performance uh, rises. Now, the uh, other thing is, and this is going to really probably blow a lot of guys away, I don't, I don't, if a player in my mind not in my mind, but in his mind, wants to be a baseline player. If he loves it on the baseline and he does not want to go to the net, okay, uh, and just wants to be a baseline player, guess what? I'm going to make him the very best baseline player he wants to be. Because if I don't, if I force him to become a servant volleyer or to become a counterpuncher, What's going to happen? He's not going to take ownership of it. So then now we've created a whole other behavioral problem. So our job as coaches is to identify what is the game that the player likes to play, that he takes ownership, and center our coaching and teaching him to play that game. Now, that doesn't mean we don't teach him how to volley and how to come to the net and do some all-court things. Yes, we do do that. But for the most part, if he likes to be on the baseline and he likes to bang it away, well, we have to make him the very best banger he wants to be. And in the meantime, we're trying to get some behavioral change out of him to maybe consider uh, becoming an all-court player than just a baseliner. But for the most you kind of follow what I'm saying? I agree 100%. I think that's one of the advantages. I've always been a believer in a player development plan, and I think sometimes coaches make the mistake of helping too much with the player development plan. The player development plan has, you know, is a team plan, but it's the player who develops that plan. And if you see that, you know, you've got to look at what the player wants to do in order to make that plan. And the great thing about having a plan, when you see it, you know, not working, or you see them going, especially with teenagers and girl, I remember a girl that, a young lady now that just got married and uh, went to the Air Force Academy. And uh, remember when she first discovered boys in high school and uh, I uh, said to her, uh, when are we going to sit down and uh, discuss your player development plan uh, so you can give me the new plan? And she says, well, what do you mean new plan? Uh, Why should I change my plan? I said, well, you've already changed it. You're not. You you told me we were going to practice so long. You were going to be committed so many times, hours on your own doing this stuff. So evidently you changed the plan. And when we sit down together, she decided, well, you know, maybe I better get back to my plan. And, you know, so I think well, that's, 
like you said, if you don't know, and of course that's my great for high school tennis, is they limit the amount of time you can be with the players, and then they expect you to produce a team. And, uh, you know, I always said Jimmy uh, Connors or Billie Jean King can't do it in the time we're given. And I've been accused of not being a uh, a no-cut coach because I ran player-parent meetings uh, for uh, three months prior to the start of the legal practice. But, uh, you know... I think what you have to offer is good. I think we should talk about it uh, uh, continuously because, uh, you know, it is training and there's just, we have to start using the tools that are available. And we've just about gone through a broadcast and I appreciate you coming back, but I have to do the commentary and I didn't want to do it first because uh, I, I think what you had to say is just too important. Is there any, I think before I do my commentary, I would like you to tell people how to get in touch with you because I know your history and I know your help and willingness to help other new coaches and everything. So how can people, if they have questions, they, they know they can contact me and I will contact you, but how can they contact you to get information? Well, they can... Uh... Email me at johnangel at usf.edu. Okay. That, well, that's Johnny, that it's... I, that's what I kind of watch. Go ahead. Uh, that is one email that I watch uh, that I don't get thousands of emails today. <laughs> <laughs> even at my age, I got to tell you, even at my age, I still participate at USF uh, in learning new behavioral science. Uh, it's never too late to learn, and it's never too late to expand your uh, horizons, you know, the West way I look at it. And I'm a pretty positive guy. So if somebody wants a copy of the studies, they can email me. I'll be glad to do it. Um, there is a uh, – I have some stuff that talks about mistakes that coaches make, Um that is probably pretty, I can see myself even in some of these studies on occasion. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it takes reading them to realize that, whoa, I should be doing this slightly differently, you know. So right. we, we all get off yeah, our we, programs sometimes, and we just need reminders. Absolutely. So it's been a pleasure talking to you. And if I sounded a little redundant or – Uh, off on tangents, that's just the way my mind works sometimes Uh, because it's a a topic that I'm passionate about and uh, without having PowerPoints for me to really show you the PowerPoint, uh, it's difficult to get it across, you know, but I enjoy it. I think you've made good use of our time and now I've got to get to the commentary because like I told you before, it's a little longer than usual, but I wanted to discuss, I had a lot of comments about my uh, article in Florida tennis magazine and about high schools and our education system. So, uh, so July 25th commentary, uh, here we go. Uh, Admittedly, I do get on the topic and stay there for a while, as I have about the game of tennis being about time. No, 
Hopefully I'm not going to spend the next few years discussing politics and the pros and cons of the USTA and the failure of our education system. Yes, by tennis losing value and education system article in this issue of Florida Tennis Magazine can be considered political, but as a member of those organizations and citizens of the United States, is not really everything political? To listen to Coach Denise, those listening to Coach Denise exploring tennis lessons for the last four plus years have often heard me ask, if high school tennis was an after-school sport or an after-school activity at your high school. You have also heard mentors like Alan Fox, Ashley Hobson, uh, Coach Chuck Reese, J.P. Weber, and a few others talk about today's challenges of producing high school tennis players in today's educational system of teaching to test rather than subject matter. The point of my of the excuse me, the point of agreement I hear in all our mentors' statements is there is no shortcuts to success. It takes commitment, competition, goals, failures, successes, and of course hard work to become a tennis player. It was only natural that I took their no-shortcut philosophy of building tennis players and inserted, quote-unquote, there are no shortcuts in developing wisdom, tennis, or other, art act in the, or other athletes. It is a long, hard journey, but a worthwhile one. No, I did not place or even... I did not place all or even most of the blame on the USTA for tennis, other sports no longer being one of the building blocks of our children's education system, but I did hope that they would not succumb to the mediocrity policy. Yes, I understand that tennis is an international sport and the marketing of tennis is essential. Only One only had to watch Sunday's International Tennis Hall of Fame ceremony to recognize the marketing value and politics is universal. The inductees from China, France, and Russia showcased the international growth of tennis. The acceptance speeches of the deserving three inductees also provide another lesson. When listening to each of those remarkable inductees, I did not think one had to be a tennis coach to understand the journey of becoming a champion is no is a long process which includes competition, pressure, and setbacks before developing their game. Even then, coaches and a team are needed to help with staying on track. If the message sounds familiar to those for those listening to the Yellow Ball Network, it might be because our mentors often speak of the problems making things easier and the challenge it creates for tennis and life. Watching the inspirational speeches of the Hall of Fame inductees only reinforce positions of our mentors as well as my position in my article in Florida Tennis Magazine. Yes, 
we must be thankful for the growth of tennis around the world, and Lee Nye must share some of the credit with IMG and the other marketers for producing nine professional tournaments in China. But if America are going to be continue to compete, we need coaches willing to produce athletes. There are no shortcuts to coaching competitive and mentally prepared tennis players or in preparing individuals for life's journey. It is time we make sports part of our high school agenda and include coaches as part of future USTA and high school deliberation. It's your advantage. Thank you for uh, listening, and we will be back next week with Coach, or not next week, next month with Coach Chuck Reese. Bye now.